Hello and welcome to Dark Days Radio, Darkling number 25. I'm of course your host Mike, and tonight we have a great submission from Adrian and Steve discussing the various factions and sects of Dark Ages Vampire. So without further ado, let's hear what they've got to say. Welcome, Darker Days listeners, to Darkling number three in the Dark Ages series. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the Knight sects and the role of elders in the Dark Ages game. And joining me on the microphones tonight, I have... My name's Steve, uh, otherwise known as Vergast. How you doing, Adrian? Yeah, really good, Steve. How about yourself? Ah, pretty good, thanks. Excellent, excellent. Have you been getting much gaming in since the last time that we spoke? Yes, yes, my regular gaming group is deeply entrenched in my Vampire the Masquerade Chronicle that's been running for about a year now, so... Excellent, and unfortunately my invitation through to Dark Ages uh, has still not borne any fruit, so uh, we're still talking character creation at the moment, so... I've talked to the storyteller and said to him that, that I actually expect a game that I can report on before we wrap up this series. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to hear some actual uh, gameplay of that if you can. So. Yeah, it'd be it would be nice. I've kind of I've kind of put him under the pump to try and uh, to try and get him moving along, but we'll see how that pans out. Okay, cool, cool. Now, it, what's been really cool to see is that since. Episode 1 has dropped, and I only finished editing Episode 2 a couple of days ago, so that has yet to go up. But we've already managed to generate a little bit of feedback from the first episode. And this is really cool, because we always like to, well, firstly, know that other people are listening to the episodes that we're producing. And the two that I received was one from some guy called Darker Days Mark. Uh, have you ever heard of him before, Steve? No, it must be some kind of nut job. <laughs> <laughs> but still, no, no, we, we, we love Mark, and uh, he's, he sent us uh, some really positive feedback about the sorts of things that, uh, that we talked about in episode one, and we seem to have hit on pretty much all the right topics for that, so that was really good to hear. And the other one that we got was from a fellow by the name of Micah, who is from Finland. And he's starting up a brand new Dark Ages group at the moment uh, with a uh, new group who have never played this game before. And he was looking at what we would advise him to do if we, if we wanted him to be successful with his brand new Chronicle. I've talked to Micah in the intervening time since uh, recording that episode, and what we'll do is use his questions, I think, as the basis for episode four. And you're happy to do that, aren't you, Steve? Yeah, that's great. So at least that way we've we've had a listener who's been able to give us a bit of structure and a few real-world problems that we can work with as well. Uh, but that episode will be coming out in a couple of weeks' time. And you also received one too, didn't you, Steve? Yes, the great luminary Beckett has contacted us through the ether and uh, has brought us some interesting points, uh, asking us if we've considered talking about how the modern setting, there is multiple references to the appearance of Hunter the Reckoning, uh, Hunter's uh, reminding elders of something in the past, and how the Dark Ages Inquisitor came out. Hmm, interesting. And how, in a retroactive respect, how various paths came to be of such important aspects of the Sabbat, which is a... 
tying into our last episode about roads. I didn't actually know about the reference in Hunter the Reckoning, but then I've only read through the book a couple of times. I must admit that that's a, a new one on me, but then Beckett, as I said, is a luminary, so I'm sure he knows what he's talking about. Oh, definitely. I, I, I would definitely say that he has probably forgotten more about the world of darkness than I'm likely to have read. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. But again, he says that he's uh, he caught the episode and it really uh, reminded him of the uh, the old uh, WGPR network and uh, contributing a bit. So maybe we'll may hear a bit more from Beckett in the future, which would be cool. Yeah, that'd be excellent. It sounded from his email as well that he had a couple of projects that he either was working on or wanted to work on. So that would be pretty cool. Yeah. I think what would be great is if we got to the point where the number of Darklings being submitted actually outnumbered the regular episodes. <laughs> I don't know how Chris and, and uh, Mike would feel about that. But, <laughs> but it's it's good to have an active fan community. And uh, yeah, speaking, speaking of that, um, I took a look and I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. I was kicking myself this afternoon. Uh, this episode is being recorded a couple of days after Darker Days, episode number 35, came out. And I noticed that one of the things that they are doing is a review of Ashen Colts, uh, which would have been a beautiful thing to have listened to before we recorded this episode. Yeah, is that a book yeah, that you're familiar with? Ashen Colts, yes. Funnily enough, I've got it laid out in my little pile in front of me, ready f- to talk about a few of the uh, topics tonight. Excellent. So hopefully what we are going to say is going to gel very, very well with what's in episode 35. I'll download it during the week and have a bit of a listen and see how we went. Cool. Okay, so what we're going to do is dive straight in now to the episode on sects and elder involvement. Uh, what we've decided to do is look at only some of the major organizations which are currently in existence uh, during the Dark Ages period. There are a few more which are detailed in the Dark Ages main core book, but uh, what we're going to focus on tonight is to look at the Furors, the Order of Bitter Ash, the Prometheans, the Manus Nigrum, and the Canite Heresy. And there's a couple of questions just to structure it that we're going to ask about each one of those organisations just to keep Steve and I on track because we could talk about this stuff all night. If you want to know any more information, we'll reference the books that we're using whilst we're recording tonight. The other thing that you might want to take a look at that I read through in preparation to this episode was The Dark Ages Companion. Now, aside from being a fantastic book, if you want some organisations that are not Cainite-based, then Dark Ages Companion is a really cool book to pick up, and you can start to see some sort of synergies as well arising between material in that book and the stuff that we'll talk about tonight. So to kick things off, I think that we might start off with the Furors. We'll go through probably in the order that they're presented in the book, just as we did with Rhodes. So first of all, who are the Furors? Well, they seem to be very much aligned with the idea of this proto-Sabbat. So they're going to be a group of individuals who want to buck the existing system. They um, are labelled by the other Cainites at large as being outlaws and cast-offs and runaways, but obviously they're a lot more dangerous than this. They do hail often from relationships with their sires, which have broken down or are tyrannical or abusive, or they simply just want to throw off the shackles 
of the Cainite society that they found themselves within. I mean, the book does say that even though some people believe that they are ignorant of the traditions, in fact, it's the complete opposite. They have a full appreciation for the laws under which Cainite society operate. It's just that they have chosen to step outside those laws. In terms of what they aim to achieve, uh, this is something which is a bit sort of hard to grapple with because really what they want to do is they're all about freedom. So if you think about what the Sabbat are trying to achieve in that they are seen as a force of freedom from the elders, this is really the, the nascent version of this philosophy. They will accept into their ranks pretty much anybody who has the same ideology and they're probably likely to sympathise with people who have come from sires who are either abusive or dictatorial or people who have basically suffered under the system. In terms of actually putting them into your chronicle and using these guys, I think that it's really going to be determined on what you actually want to achieve from the interaction with the furors. So have a bit of a think about whether or not you want to use them as a contrast for society at large and show the characters that there is actually a different way of existing, albeit a very, very dangerous one, because these guys have absolutely no protection whatsoever under the traditions. If they are located for a lot of the acts that they perpetrate, the justice is going to be quite swift and quite brutal. So maybe even if you have got a character in your own group who has perhaps suffered under a sire or a group of elders or even if the Chronicle has taken a turn where you as the storyteller can put a twist on the event so it looks as though the PCs are being treated quite unfairly, they might find a sympathetic ear with the furors. And I think that the way that I would use them is in that contrasting light to try and get them to think about the society that they've joined and whether or not they actually have to accept their place within it. Would that kind of gel with how you'd use them, Steve? Yeah, um, I mean, another idea to throw into the mix is perhaps having a look at the world through the Furor's eyes and coming at it from a kind of merry band of outlaws, much in the sense of, uh, say, Robin Hood, where they kind of are drawn together by mutual oppression, but then different factions within it bring the group into different ways of doing things. Say there's more militant members who wish to take the fight to the enemy, perhaps there's more subtle members that want to be more... Uh, working towards getting them uh, approved in Canaanite society. And it's uh, a way of looking at the Fuhrers instead of being bands of outlaws just running around uh, chaotically. I mean, I've always been very much of the opinion, especially when you look at the fact that the, the ideology of the Fuhrers evolves very much into what the Sabbat believe and, and the formation of that sect. I've been very much against the idea of using groups like the Sabbat as the mindless, bloodthirsty killers. I think you, you described them as the, the chainsaw-wielding lunatics on motorbikes in the last episode. And I, I really don't like doing that and just throwing them as cannon fodder because it's the equivalent in D&D of, you know, you, you kick open the door and there are four kobolds in the next room. You don't need to know why they're there. You just need to, you know, kill them and take their loot. The Furors, if you are going to use them within a campaign... I don't think the way to use them is to have them randomly burning down places and, and destroying things out of hand. 
they actually have to have a motivation. And if the PCs get the opportunity to discuss this sort of thing with them, they should almost seem to be a, a sympathetic group, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. The sense of, uh, like you said, if other characters that have been oppressed by their size or still being oppressed by their size, it's a, it's a, a touchstone that they can look at, like you said before, a way of escaping that if they want to. So I don't think there's too much more that we can elaborate on with the Furors. They're a nice sort of self-contained group, and especially with the minimalist approach that's been taken with the amount written about them. But I think that if people want to explore them any further, certainly have a read of the section in Vampire the Dark Ages. Are you aware of anywhere else that they're written up? Yeah, I mean, if you want to pick up uh, Ash and Thief, there's a whole section on the Furors there. Uh, discussing many of the themes that we've talked about mainly. Um, those, those are the two best places to look for them, I think, Adrian. Cool. Okay, so moving straight along, the second group that, and this is the one that's one of my personal favourites, is the Order of the Bitter Ash. We mentioned in the first episode that there are certain things that you can use within a Dark Ages Chronicle that act as these little touchstones and that your players will recognise as being medieval, of being of the Dark Ages. And I think that the Order of the Bitter Ashes fits so beautifully into this setting. The story behind them is that there was a group of knights on the road to the Holy Land, and on their way there, they were they met a luminous being who had a strange mark upon his forehead. That night, he met with them and then embraced the entire Brotherhood of Knights, then told them to go out and to seek the Grail. Now, the legend states that these newly created vampires actually located the grail and then drank of it, and that this transformed them and made them stand above and beyond the rest of their peers. Uh, Things like the fact that they have luminous skin, and it also alludes to the fact that they have special powers when it comes to fighting infernalists. It also says further on in, in a couple of the other source books things like the fact that when they actually drink of the grail, it's considered to be a second embrace that washes away any of the oath bonds that they have, the blood bonds uh, that existed previously. It also means as well that they can, and and this is where two books do contradict themselves, uh, in the main rule book, it actually states that they can allow others to drink of their blood, and anyone who drinks from a member of the Order of the Bitter Ash will gain the luminescent skill and undisclosed powers against infernalism for the period of one month. But the Ashen Knight actually says something quite different, doesn't it? In Ashen Knight, it actually talks uh, about the effect of what they call the Grail Embrace. It talks about how he does not need to feed, how his body replenishes its own vitae at the rate of one-fifth of its total blood pool per day of slumber, that inanimate sources of aggravated damage like sunlight and fire do lethal damage, that the Grail Knights no longer uh, suffer the effects of frenzy. The skin, as you said, takes on a, a, a glowing pallor, but that's tied into the phases of the moon. So in a new moon, you glow quite brightly. However, in a uh, full moon, you are much more dimmer. He can no longer drink the canine vitae, and all existing blood oaths, as you said, are broken. But also, from now on, 
Every ingested point of canine vitae causes a level of aggravated damage as it burns the knight's blood. Uh, uh, as it burns, the knight's blood causes the same effect in other canines. Oh, but they can, however, drink the blood of other Grail Knights. That's the end of it, really. Well, I, I actually quite like this idea that you've got conflicting viewpoints in two source books from the same line, because I see these guys as being an incredibly mysterious order that you might encounter maybe one or two of their numbers at a particularly fortuitous time, that they would show up when grand things were going to happen. I think that if you've got a group like this, you don't want to necessarily nail down what they can do. In this case, it's really cool because if you've got players who have read through the main Dark Ages rulebook and think they've got a bit of a handle on what these guys are, but then you've got Ashen Knight, which gives you often contradictory information, it's then up to the storyteller, as with all things, to decide where the truth lies for their chronicle. And I think that not nailing it down does make them a little bit more mysterious. Agreed. You could even uh, leave out certain powers if you wanted to, to, just to mix things up a little bit so what's printed in, in the text isn't canon for clever players to go away and download PDFs. Yes. Um, the other thing that's brought up in Ashen Knight is the, the kind of purpose or the mission of the Order, which is much more kind of uh, uh, expanded upon. It says here that the... Uh, the Order protects holy relics, uh, rescuing them from the wicked custodians and preserving them for sacred use. The Order provides guidance to vampires seeking redemption. This guidance most often comes indirectly or cloaked in mystery, as the Order fears imposing its will on troubled souls in moments of crisis. The Order also, also assists vampires seek release uh, from the world, uh, though inspiring courage to greet the sun allowing contact with relics to destroy vampiric flesh and vitae or granting access to other means of leaving the world and entering the realm of the divine. And also that the Order fights monsters of all sorts, all beings who can conspicuously serve evil powers. That's a pretty wide brief. Pretty wide, pretty wide. And it's, it's the, 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 the formation, as discussed in um, Ashen Knight, to do with a... a, a a coterie of vampires called the Gatherers that sprung up not long after the Jewish migration from Egypt mm-hmm. in search of Israel to follow this new religion. They're known as the Gatherers. The Gatherers are the ones who set up the Order of Bith- uh, Bitter Ashes. And it's the Gatherers that charged the, the Order with these tasks. And that three are positive and one is negative, which is uh, an interesting way of setting up a Holy Order. So yeah, speak. yeah, very much so. So I think that these, this order in particular, it speaks volumes to me when, when I'm planning uh, a, a Dark Ages Chronicle. I've always wanted to include them, but just never quite gotten to the point where I think that they would be a perfect fit for what's going on. So I think that really what I'm going to need to do is get a copy of Ashen Knight and read through that in a lot more detail because the sorts of things that you were just describing now as part of their brief uh, would be brilliant. I can even think immediately the one that comes to mind is that if you've got a particularly repentant vampire who is seeking some sort of redemption, um, then that fits in really nicely with a lot of the discussions that we had on roads in the last episode, that perhaps if you've got this individual who is actively seeking out the Order of Bitter Ashes, then their actions could perhaps play into how other people interpret their own roles, interpret their roads, 
and also where they actually fit within the world. What I really liked about them is like you, they seem to be a mysterious kind of, for want of a better word, Knights Templar for K-Knights. You can use them in such a way, but with the information in, in Ashen Knight, you can also use them as, for want, uh, for want of a better word, kind of uh, saintly figures, pointing yes. vampires in the right direction, or the, the holy direction. And it's, as you said, an, another interesting way of exploring redemption. Because at this time, as we discussed in our first episode, the power of faith is still very strong in a lot of people. You know, as we discussed again in the first episode, the power of the church is also very powerful. This, this idea of belief overcoming even the most foul damnation is quite a strong story that you could follow. And I think what it is as well is very, very firmly contextualised into the Dark Ages world. I think that if you tried to pitch an idea like this for Masquerade, whilst it would be quite a cool idea, I don't think that it would have the same impact as it does when you're situated in the Dark Ages Chronicle. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, I'm going to draw reference to Ashen Knight. And uh, it's got the little sidebar with the, the, uh, the, the destiny of the Order, which basically says once the Age of Chivalry comes to pass... So does the order as the, the kind of collective belief in that doing the right thing, you know, standing up and being a virtuous kind of knightly figure falls to the wayside. It's almost as though their time has passed. So they they fade from the world. The changeling storyteller in me really, really likes that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Although the, the, the finishing note for them that I do notice, and I, I got certain movie images in my head when it talks about where the Grail actually is. And the Dark Ages book actually states that one of the rumours is that it is entombed somewhere in the Middle East and that they left a single member of the Order to guard over it so that when the time was right, it could be revealed. And, of course, I have uh, Indiana Jones scenes running through my head at the same time. Because I, I think in that movie, if, if you want to capture a, a, just a really beautiful moment, there's that very final scene in Last Crusade where the entire temple is collapsing because of the, the greed and, and silliness of everything that has gone on. And then through all of the, the falling masonry and the dust and everything, you see the really sad old knight just kind of framed by all of the destruction, and then he just disappears and for me, that was one of those iconic scenes that if I could somehow bottle that and put it into a Dark Ages Chronicle, I would be a really happy man. <laughs> that's some good imagery to draw upon. Uh, mm. But again, that's, that's going back to what you were saying about this order, how it's a really useful to tap into that idea of the Holy Knight or the Templar, a holier-than-thou figure that can stand above the rest of the group and show them the way to redemption, which is quite interesting to now, I'm sure that we could continue about how cool the Order of the Bitter Ash is for the rest of the episode, so I'm going to steer us towards one of the other smaller groups, uh, which is the Prometheans. Okay, so what are the Prometheans? The Prometheans are the descendants of Canaanites, or of the actual Canaanites that once resided in Carthage, and are now moving to try and reform Carthage again. It's said in Carthage that Canaanites lived alongside humanity in peace. If that's true, these these Prometheans want to reinvigorate that idea and form a new covenant with humanity and perhaps 
form a new city, much like the first or second city that's hinted at in the Book of Nod. The group is named after Prometheus, who braved the wrath of the gods to bring uh, fire to, uh, to humanity. The vampires claim that the, the Ikonu ignore the potential of uh, by humanitas for allowing self-restraint and claim further that the traditions have been corrupted by the Inconu. Now, Prometheans to me always spoke of, like the Fjordors, of being a kind of proto-Camarilla. But whereas they had a a kind of high-minded idea to make a new Carthage, with the events of the Inquisition a few hundred years ahead, they have to change the kind of ideals. And using the biohumanities or the path of humanity to hide amongst the populace and remain in a kind of um, hidden kind of way. What do you feel about the uh, Prometheans, Adrian? I really like the fact that you brought up the point about the Inquisition, because when you look at what these guys are trying to achieve, it is really that that peace that they could exist alongside humanity openly without the need for a masquerade at all. And I suppose that underpinning that is the fact that they push the via humanitus, the, the road of humanity, as being the best possible path. Uh, so there's a lot here which makes them similar to the Camarilla, but there's an awful lot in their philosophy which makes them stand alone as their own individual sect. And this is what I really like, is that when the writers of Dark Ages have come back to say, well, where could the idea of the Camarilla have come from? You get this idea of the Prometheans as being enough touchstones that you realise that, yes, this is where it came from, but enough other points that were unique to the time. So reaching back to Carthage, which isn't that far in the past for medieval characters, but also you have what I consider to be an incredibly tragic betrayal in the Inquisition, that you have vampires who say, we honestly believe that there is a future where humanity would accept us. And then suddenly you have the Inquisition, where vampires are burnt by their hundreds. They are destroyed openly. I think that if you're playing one of these characters, especially long term, and that you'd started to bring some strategies into play, maybe you had revealed yourself to a select few mortals, and then the Inquisition was upon you, I think that's fodder for a truly tragic tale. I I would be very surprised how your character would emotionally be the same person after that sort of an event in history. I agree. Uh, Again, that ties into the idea of them slightly revising their philosophy and forming the, the masquerade, for want of a better word. Could you actually see a group like this getting any sort of traction whatsoever in masquerade? Hmm. Perhaps amongst the Anarchs. I think it'd be a very interesting anarch idea, but I think that the elders become too entrenched in their kind of mindset, much like the elders at the time in the Dark Ages era are too entrenched in their idea of uh, vampiric existence, that the Prometheans are a minor sect. And I think as well that the world, the modern world, has changed to a point where I think that if you tried to storytell a chronicle around the realisation of the goals of the Prometheans, I think that it would be a lot harder to achieve. I mean, I've had this conversation with players for for years in my group who have said Masquerade would be a really cool game if there was no Masquerade um, and that vampires were just out there. And I said, well, have a bit of a think about how you would actually run a game like that and how people in the modern nights 
would actually respond. Uh, if anything, humanity is at, a, is at a point now where they are technologically advanced and militarily advanced to the point where the dreams of the Prometheans may as well, I suppose, be dead. Mm. Would you sort of see the same the same sort of analogy there, that these guys exist at that moment in time in the Dark Ages where I think that the opportunity is just there and then they miss it? Yeah, which is some of the tragedy of the Dark Ages kind of line as well. There's a, there is a sense of tragedy uh, as you read through this, the, the fall of the Cappadocians, the various... Uh, sects that we talked about often don't make it to the modern nights and that sense of nothing is permanent or there's this sense of impermanence to even things that are uh, you know supposedly immortal and will last forever that doesn't mean that the world will stay the same yes yeah and that's that's a really nice thing i think that we might revisit that when we do our next episode on storytelling for the dark ages so um, I'd like to revisit that theme and, and discuss it in a lot more detail. So okay. moving from the Prometheans, we have our last group, second last group, sorry, that we're going to be discussing, which is the Manus Nigrum. And we're probably going to go a bit of the same way as Order of the Bitter Ash with these guys because there's just such a volume written about them. And I think that the, the Black Hand and the Talmaray are just embedded into the Vampire, the Masquerade, and the Dark Ages line so much that they've really fired the imagination of a lot of storytellers and players over the years. With the Manus Nigrum, really, they have come out of another sect, the Talmaray, which, according to the Vampire, the Masquerade Storytellers Handbook, arose from a group of scholars and mages who tried to make some sort of a deal with vampires so that there would be a mutual exchange of knowledge. And unfortunately, it didn't quite work out for them, and they were embraced and lost access to the power that they had and became vampires uh, into the bargain. Now, it does say, and in most of the sources that I've had a chance to, to read through, even in the book Cain's uh, Chosen, The Black Hand, a lot of these sort of mythical stories of the creation of this sect begin with the words, according to. And I really like this, just the same with The Order of the Bitter Ash, how there are all these conflicting views as to how they came about. But in the time of the Dark Ages... What has happened is that there's been a break away from the Talmaray, and that is the Manus Nigrum and them, and they have just a competing agenda. The Manus Nigrum basically believes that they should be trying to awaken the antediluvians, um, that th this will usher in some sort of grand new age. And it even hints rather darkly at the fact that the sect is compiling a great census of all vampires with their havens, uh, who they are, their lineages, so that when the antediluvians awaken, they can turn over these volumes of information um, so that the great purge can actually begin. So they are they are quite a scary cult in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, aren't they? Yes, especially as uh, some of their uh, beliefs also believe that in the Dark Ages period, they believe that there are too many Cainites abound and are actively thinning out the ranks of vampires. So, and I suppose this is where the idea that in later nights where the Black Hand become most well known as the assassins of the Sabbat, I suppose that this ideology is where... Um, they ultimately end up. Yes, and that 
that sense that, you know, Manus Nigrum, uh, I think it's Black Hand, isn't it, in Latin, then yes. gets transformed into Black Hand, which then in the modern life also becomes synonymous with the Sabbat as a whole. Mm. I mean, quite often Camarilla vampires don't even know that there's a difference between the Black Hand and the Sabbat, as they are more like a sect within a sect in the modern nights. I'd even go so far as to say that the, the Manus Nigrum at this point are really, they sort of occupy that status almost as a Gehenna cult. Yes, definitely, definitely. That the, uh, the end of times are coming and they must prepare the way. But rather than being all up in arms about things and, uh, oh, what are we going to do? It's like, no, no, let's work for the bosses and hopefully they will smile upon us. It's, it's a bit of a strange mindset as well. It's, it's a bit much to get your head around that the idea is that, you know, eventually these elders are going to wake up and when they do, they're going to be incredibly hungry and probably kill everybody. But you know what? If we work on their side, maybe when they wake up, they will see all of the good work that we've done and reward us. To me, it's, it's, it's always seemed like a pretty strange argument. If they, were, if they were trying to recruit one of my characters, they'd have a bit of a hard time of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. But what's also quite interesting about the, the Manus Nigrum at this point in time is it's uh, splitting into two halves where you get what's talked about in modern nights, the true hand and the false hand. So aficionados of the Masquerade line will know that in books like the uh, Dirty Secrets of the Backhand, the true hand, or the descendants of the Tal Mahara, are what is known as the eastern hand of the Manus Nigrum in the Dark Ages. And the false hand, or the black hand, as it becomes known in the Sabbath, is the western hand. And they have two different ideologies, even at this time, that the Tal Mahara uh, devotes its energies to the study of hell and purgatory, where the souls of the unholy go after death. And the Western half are taking a keen interest in medieval politics, which is uh, you know, an, an interesting way of looking at how a set can develop over a long period of time. And, I mean, Kane's Chosen even goes so far as to say that the, the Manus Nigrum, with their interest in politics during the Dark Ages, this was underpinned by a basic belief that nobody should wield secular power except for them. And so what they would actually do is be able to wield this power in order to thin out the ranks of, of vampires. So they were actually quite interested in steering the church in very particular ways and also steering uh, things like witch hunters onto their enemies. And there's quite a lot of confusion and blame going around as to how much of a role the Black Hand actually played in the formation of the Inquisition. That's interesting. It's almost as though it kind of backfired on them. Yeah, as you'll see, fans of the Metaplot will now be hanging on the edge of their seats as we uh, probably talk about the, the existence of the uh, Manus Nigrum in the modern nights. Od oddly enough, they are still around, but not as you would know them. Do you want to take this, Adrian? Yeah, these guys are the sect which is occupying a city in the Dark Umbra, which is the reflection of Enoch, and it's rumoured here that there are sleeping antediluvians that the sect is looking after, and really a lot of what they're doing in that area is the study of death and the afterlife. 
And what I found quite interesting when I was reading through the Vampire Storyteller's Guide for a revised edition was it stated that the number of vampires involved in this side of the Black Hand never went over about 150 to 200. So it's inferred in a lot of the, the materials that members of the Hand can actually recognise each other because it's such a small, tight sect. Um, and whilst they will only allow... Uh, vampires to join from a certain number of clans. I believe the totaling in number is nine. There's other groups who have an interest in death and the afterlife who they will actually induct into their ranks, including wraiths. Uh, now, obviously, if you then follow that all the way through into the wraith line, into ends of empire, uh, that's the point where you will read about the destruction of Enoch. Uh, but then it's the destruction of pretty much about everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, what I always liked about this is the idea of the uh, the race uh, using a nuclear attack to attack, <laughs> which was rumored to be the ghost of the bomb that was used to break up the fight between Ravnos and the three Bodhisattvas of Far Eastern Kindred that were yes. uh, having it out in the uh, Indian subcontinent somewhere, wasn't it? Yes. Um, yep. And then. Not only that, uh, a second bomb is detonated at the heart of the labyrinth by, I think it's a, um, a void engineer. Was it Xerxes Jones, I think his name is? And that, those two nuclear devices being triggered at almost the same time causes the sixth great maelstrom. Yes. Pretty much ends the wraith line. Quite spectacularly. Yeah, true. But then... Out of that, I suppose there's something to be said, because then you get Orpheus springing out of that, which is quite interesting. Yes, yeah, definitely but that, so. But that's a discussion for another time, I think. It certainly is. And so what we'll do is we'll steer it towards our last candidate uh, so that we can wrap up the section on sect, and that is the Canite Heresy. Now, you've recently reacquainted yourself with this when you ordered a replacement of your book, was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw it going on eBay and knew that we were going to be talking about it, I thought I'd snap it up, and I got it quite cheaply, so I'm quite happy about that. Now, interestingly, of course, is the fact that the Canite Heresy, whilst it's spoken about in a number of the Dark Ages books, um, often quite tangentially, the actual book for the Canite Heresy is a Black Dog publication, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And in true spirit of the uh, Black Dog Games Factory, it's a pretty dark book, I've got to tell you, Adrian. It's It's not... It's not one of those books you want to leave lying around on the coffee table uh, for uh, <laughs> anyone just to pick up anyway. But that being said, I'm sure we can talk about it in higher ideals and leave some of the uh, darker elements out of it. Okay, so who who are the Canite Heresy? What, what are they on about? Okay, well, the, the Canite Heresy is the belief, fundamentally, that Cain was not cursed by God. He was blessed because if he wanted to destroy Cain for killing Abel, he could have at the time, and when he uh, 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 witnessed the murder. But instead, he marked Cain and set him out into the world. The Cainite heresy is the belief of the blessing of God in Cain, and the vampires are higher beings. This comes from their kind of uh, twisting of Gnostic ideas that uh, there is a spark of the divine in all of us, but the debasement of humanity comes about from being entrenched in the mortal world or the, uh, the material world. Because vampires do not need to, to breathe or eat or 
or uh, copulate to to uh, spread their numbers, they're seen as being higher beings, therefore closer to God. They then, with the rise of the Christian church, begin to pervert early Christian churches and bring about a number of heresies. And the Canaanite heresy is often talked about as being a kind of single entity. It's not really. It's a collection of ideas all espousing the same beliefs that Cain is blessed or vampires as a whole are blessed. And it's often used as a means of control. Now, as Chris and Mike talked about in the last session, uh, sorry, the last uh, Darker Days episode, in Ashen Cults, it talks about setting up uh, yourself a cult and what have you. Well, the Canaanite heresy gives you for want of a better word, a mode of belief so your followers become entrenched in the idea that you are divine and that your vampiric nature is not really a curse but a blessing, which is an interesting way to look at things in the dark medieval world. What are your thoughts of the uh, canine heresy, Adrian? I have always held to the belief with role-playing games that everything is better with secret societies and cults. Um, there, there isn't a single game that can't be improved by including these, which is why Call of Cthulhu has a very special place in my heart. The Canine Heresy, for me, is one of those where, again, it fits into the Dark Ages line so perfectly because in terms of the way in which it perverts belief and the way in which it twists it to such a point where it's almost unrecognisable, but from a vampiric point of view, it does make a certain amount of sense. I think there's no other time in history where this could have existed. So it's very distinctly Dark Ages in the way in which it approaches um, the subject matter. Now, I do remember back in the day reading through a copy of Canaanite Heresy, but I've never actually owned a copy. And I do remember that it earned its black dog label in spades, very much like Clambook Barley did at the time. I have used these guys because what I have used them for essentially is to challenge. And you get a lot of people who play Vampire of the Dark Ages who will ally for any number of reasons, whether or not it be for their road, their concept, simply for influence, who will ally themselves with the, with the church. By presenting these groups of individuals, you're able to actively challenge not only their power base, but also their ideology. And there is a certain pervasiveness and persuasiveness to their argument as well, that when, when you consider that the, the, the foundation of the heresy is that God could have killed Cain, but chose instead to mark him so he could not be harmed. Because it actually, you know, it, it states obviously in the Bible that, that the mark that was placed upon Cain's brow was so that all others would recognise him and would not strike him down. Now, as with all heresies, if you look at real-world cases where people have been convicted of, of heresy, it often comes from an individual seeking an honest answer to a question and simply arising at, arriving at a conclusion which is seen as either theologically or dogmatically incorrect. In terms of if you use that as a definition for a heresy, this is perfect. It fits the bill. Um, so what I would recommend is that if people wanted to explore this, and I will warn people that the, the types of conversations that occur in that book and the types of conversations that can occur 
with the Canite Heresy are not for every gaming table. If you do have people who have got very, very strong religious beliefs that they hold as players, not as characters, as players, then they may actually be quite confronted by some of the material in, in these books. So, again, as as I say, ad nauseum probably, if you're planning on introducing stuff like this, I think that it's beholden to the storyteller to really gauge your group to know where the thresholds around what is acceptable conversation and acceptable gameplay lie. Um, and whilst the, this group is a very, very nice group to, to, to put into your, your chronicle, it won't be for everyone's taste. I couldn't agree more, Adrian. Some of the subject matter is very dark. But that's not to say that you need to use all those dark elements. You can also oh, of course take not. Some, some of the fundamental ideas that uh, perhaps uh, exposed upon, like is it the Lankia Sanctum in Vampire the Requiem? It's yeah. about the Testament of Longinus, Longinus being the Roman centurion who stabbed Christ uh, while he was uh, crucified. And, and again, another interesting religious idea. Now, these, these things, as you said, best off taken very seriously when in view of your players. But if your players are a bit nervous about this, you can tone it down a lot and not really explore, just talk about, yes, this is what they stand for, but not really go into the actual teachings or explore that theme too much, but just set them up as a shadowy kind of organisation that is to be thwarted and not to be looked into or read, because it is essentially heresy, so you would be polluting yourself in, in, in delving these things. So you can still use the, the canine heresy as a a foil for your group, but not explore too much about what they really believe in. Mm. Especially if, the, if you've got a chronicle which is a little bit directive in that they may be working for a group of elders or, or even a, another one of the sects that we've spoken about tonight. Um, I mean, it might even be possible that you could work in that the group is inadvertently working for the Order of Bitter Ash in stamping out one of these uh, Cainite heresy cells. And so, obviously, the principles under which the group would be operating is that if somebody was to say, well, 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 maybe if we keep an open mind about this, well, the company line could be an open mind is the last thing that you want. Get in there, do your job, and get out. That by itself could be still a very rewarding couple of sessions worth of play but again, as you said, Steve, it's it's touching on the ideas without necessarily immersing yourself in the content. Mm, definitely, definitely. But also, if your group is up for the idea, you can explore to their heart's content some of the more esoteric beliefs in East, early Christianity, by Gnosticism or Carthism. That's a hard word for me to say. And any of the other heresies that you uh, you might have come across, anything that you know strike your fancy. I mean, if you've seen such movies as um, In the Name of the Rose, mm-hmm. that's a brilliant film to to watch when thinking about the uh, the Canaanite heresy, because the information contained within the book uh, that uh, that you know ends up poisoning all those monks in that movie is essentially heresy. Uh, it's hidden for a reason. It's not just out on the shelf because, you know, it's there for everyone just to pick up. It's borderline heresy. And that's yeah. that's an interesting thing that the, as your players, especially those who want to have one foot in the church, become more and more caught up in this um, belief of self, that the more and more the, 
the uh, the Canaanite heresy becomes more and more um, appealing. So they end up turning to, to want a better side, to, to the dark side, or, or trying to pervert that heresy into their own ideals. And as you said beforehand, there are mechanics actually within the Vampire Dark Ages line for you to set up your own cult if your character is so is so favoured. Uh, so maybe even one of the Chronicles could be you resting control of one of the local Canite heresy cells over towards your own beliefs so that you can you can actually justify perhaps this road for your character of taking your own cult. The uh, the Canite heresy has got a lot of a lot of uh, play in it. You need the ideas you can get out of it. When it, especially using it with, like you said, Ashen Cult, you can get a lot of game time in it and stuff that could be quite memorable for your group, especially if you can set up a, a kind of shadowy cult that the group fights through the ages and why not make up your own sect of shadowy vampires that uh, the group are the only ones who know about that are doing evil and nefarious deeds through the ages that the group fights through the ages in this very, uh, very much like in the theme of your uh, very long a running game taking you all the way to Gehenna is the, the final destruction of this evil sect. Yeah. An interesting game to play. Yeah. And and having having this sect exist to modern nights, because obviously in canon they don't manage to make it through, um, it actually states, I think it's in the main rulebook, that the Canite heresy is all but extinct after the after the Inquisition. But they are quite a nice fit for, for the modern knights, uh, because when you consider that with the idea of vampiric cults or even those cults of personality, which are all too common in modern nights, uh, you would be able to work this into a Masquerade Chronicle really nicely. Yeah. Uh, just before we were talking and uh, recording this uh, episode, you uh, delivered a, a shocking revelation to me. Perhaps you'd like to share it with your with the listeners as well. That's right. I'm I'm re-establishing my geek cred here by pulling obscure facts out of places. So it's it's great. In Kane's chosen, uh, because I mentioned that in the last episode on Rhodes that I had played a Ravnos anti-tribute on the Path of Cathari and I realised when I edited the episode that I'd actually called it the Path of Catharsis so that was one of those you know, smack myself in the back of the head moments uh, but the Path of Cathari uh, and I played this path for a number of years with the one character, never actually realising that the path itself was a way, an insidious way for the Canite heresy to worm its way through to modern knights and survive the fires of the Inquisition in order to codify their beliefs and get them into a format that was palatable to vampires of the age. They actually turned it into a road, and this road, the road of Cathari, I would recommend anyone who is familiar with the Sabbat and even tangentially familiar to this road to have a bit of a read about the stuff on the Canaanite Heresy and then have a read around this road because, as I said, I, I played the road for a number of years and at no point did I realise this until I was doing a bit of research around the, the topic for tonight. So even the best of us can forget... <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. I, I, I like how you said that I forgot it rather than that I never knew it in the first place. <laughs> it's very generous of you. 
Now, what I'm noticing here is that we're getting an awful lot of really cool ideas for Chronicles and how you can bring in a lot of these sects within the game. And I'm just keeping my eye on the time at the moment, realizing that we've been talking now for probably almost close to an hour 20. So what I'm thinking that we're going to do, if it's okay with you, Steve, is that we might actually wrap things up for tonight and then we might visit elders and give them their own episode. How do you feel about that? That sounds great to me, Adrian. Cool, cool. Okay, so you'll be able to join us in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to talk elders, and then the episode that we were alluding to, which was until this very night, episode four, storytelling techniques, uh, we'll leave that off. That'll become episode five now. So I'm sure that Mike and Chris will be very happy with more content for the Darker Days radio channel. So if you do want to leave us any feedback, like Micah, Mark and Beckett. Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is either through Mirage Arcana at gmail.com or you can get me on Twitter at Boggan Knight. If people want to get a hold of you, Steve, how's the best way? Uh, you can get a hold of me at Berghast at hotmail.com, which is V E R G H A S T. And I'm not on Twitter. So. <laughs> No, that's cool. That's cool. What we need to do is get a hold of Mark and uh, get him just to do a quick recording of our email addresses in the true Darker Day style with the nice long pauses. <laughs> That'd be cool. That'd be cool. <laughs> so if, if you're listening, Mark, we're coming for you. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to call that a wrap for tonight. This has been episode three of the Darker Days Radio Darkling Dark Ages series. Uh, This is Adrian signing off. And Steve signing off as well. Thanks very much for listening. All right. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I was very interested to hear about the Order of Bitter Ashes. Uh, I'm not really familiar with that faction at all. Uh, So it was cool to hear about them. And I think, actually, the uh, Grail Covenants trilogy by david niall wilson uh actually features them and i didn't realize it so i'm gonna have to go back through and uh look look through a couple paragraphs to see if the uh the strange protector under the temple of solomon is indeed one of the uh knights of the order of bitter ashes Uh, something i definitely want to bring up regarding the different factions of vampire the dark ages uh is that first off in the later dark ages vampire they're kind of downplayed a bit Uh, They don't show up as much. And additionally, I skimmed through both Jerusalem by night and Transylvania by night. And these factions, like the uh, Furies and the Prometheans, don't really show up that much. They're definitely very rare uh, as compared to the sects of Vampire the Masquerade, like like the Camarilla and the Spot. And they're even smaller than the Covenants presented in Vampire the Requiem. Uh, because you find the Lankaea Sanctum and the Invictus in all cities, pretty much. So, uh, not much else to say about this submission. Uh, Good stuff, and keep it going. I definitely wanted to remind everyone that Adrian and Steve are definitely looking for more uh, questions for their Storyteller Advice segment. Uh, They really want to cater to questions that you guys have so that they can tailor the episode to uh, help people as much as possible. Uh, as well as adding in their own anecdotes and experience. Uh, shoot them an email over at miragearcana at gmail.com. That's probably the best way to get to them. 
Uh, there's also a post on our Postress account that you can uh, reply to, and that's another good way to get them to notice. Uh, additionally, if you need to uh, send any feedback to Darker Days Radio, or maybe even submit your own Darkling episode, you can send us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And with that, uh, I think we're going to be signing off. Um, definitely pay attention for any uh, Google Hangouts coming up. I think we're going to be trying to do one this coming weekend. Uh, should be interesting. Uh, we tried to get it done last weekend, but uh, there's some scheduling problems uh, with both White Wolf and the uh, Darker Days hosts themselves. So, uh, yeah, pay attention to that. Pay attention to the Facebook, Twitter, and all that kind of stuff. All right, have a good night.